0: Thank you for letting me come back and, and be here this morning. <clears throat> and thank you for your partnership with the seminary. Thank you for making it real by uh, allowing us to take one of your pastors. I, I, I heard somebody talk about uh, trying to make it equitable by arranging a trade. I think we have an extra filing cabinet and maybe a bookshelf. We're, yeah. <laughs> We, we like to hire associate pastors. I was an associate pastor. Uh, one of my colleagues was an associate pastor. We like to hire associate pastors at the seminary because they tend to be hardworking and take orders well. <laughs> and so we're grateful for that. Uh, and please do come see, uh, see us at the table there on your way out. We'd like... We, we, The Seminary is about resourcing churches, resourcing leadership needs and ministry needs. We're resourcing in big and in small ways. So if you're looking to uh, resource your office supply needs, we've got pens and notepads. If you're wondering about seminary but can't see your way way clear to actually engaging in education again, get a lens cleaning cloth and maybe that will help. (laughs) Two things I want to tell you about. One, of course, is that we hired this great guy, Keith Reed, to be on staff. As the Director of Extended Learning, we're really, uh, we're really excited about that. And we're um, excited to have him come and actually give attention to some of the things that we've realized are a pressing need in, in theological education. Because not everybody is going to quit their job and move away and go to school to be better equipped as a, as a leader and a disciple. So we want to make opportunities available for everybody in all kinds of ways, and Keith's creative mind is going to be devoted to that task. And we're, we're, we're really looking forward to having him on staff. The other thing is, for those of you who are thinking about education, if you're thinking about what God may be calling you to do with your life, or the, or the rest of your life, because you're all still alive now and you have lives... I'm happy to tell you, we just got word from uh, the Association of Theological Schools, our accrediting body. They've approved our petition for a distance education program at ACTS, of which MBBS is a part. And what that means is that you can actually go to school without actually going to school. You can do school by a distance. Up to two-thirds of your education can be far away. So if you were thinking, I really want to go to school, but I happen to be moving to Tuktoyaktuk next week and I don't know what I'm going to do, this is your opportunity. You can actually take classes online, uh, live, by live streaming. And um, there, are, there are all kinds of opportunities. So we're, we're, we're just slowly chipping away at all the ways in which we can break down all the barriers that may exist between people and pursuing the call of God in their lives. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm excited about. But, uh, but now I want to take some time to, to open God's Word with you and, and, and look at what it has to say to us this morning. So if you've got a Bible in hand or... Uh, phone app, flip it open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look through what Paul's instructions on the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians have to say to us as well. We're going to look from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, right through the end of the chapter, verse 34. I'm not going to read it in advance, but we're going to walk our way through it together. So 1 Corinthians 11, keep your finger in there. and uh, But I want to I want to tell you a little story um, that my dad, who was a pastor, used to tell. And uh, I think it has relevance. There was, a, there was this little boy who uh, had a school friend, and they, and they, you know, they chatted at recess and, and things like that, and they, they happened to find out that they both went to church. The one the boy, um, Billy, went to a Baptist church, and his friend Chris went to a Catholic church. And they were comparing notes and talking about each other's experiences because neither one of them really knew much about the other kind of church. They don't, they'd grown up with their, with their church, but that was all they knew. And as they talked about it, they became curious, and they, they struck a deal. They said, Billy and Chris said, you know what, I'll tell you what, if you, if, you know, if, if you go to my church one week, I'll go to your church, and we can see what it's like. And they talked to their parents, and their parents said, yeah, that seems like a pretty good deal. We can, we can arrange that. So the first week... Um, Billy went with Chris to the Catholic Church, and he'd never been in a Catholic Church before, and it was big and tall and had stained glass windows, and there was all kinds of stuff that he'd never seen in church before. So he's full of questions. Chris, what, is, what does that mean? And Chris would explain. And, and Chris, what, what does that mean? And, and Chris would explain dutifully. Chris was very, uh, very knowledgeable, fortunately, for, for Billy. And very enlightening experience. Then the next week, they went to the Baptist Church, and... It was very different from anything Chris had ever seen before. So he was asking Billy all kinds of questions. And he said, Billy, what does that mean? And, 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 and Billy, what does that mean? And then at one point in the service, the pastor got up to preach. And he, he stepped up to the pulpit and he took his wristwatch off and he set it on the, on the pulpit. And Chris turned to Billy and said, Billy, what does that mean? And Billy said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Church is full of, of things that, that, that form... The, the, the structure of our worship, the structure of our, our spiritual expression, individually and collectively, but there are times when we do things that are, that are familiar, but we do them so much that we actually stop thinking about what it is that they are pointing to. The things that we do here are not incidental, they are not random. The worship team was up here practicing very deliberately for a long time before most of us arrived, so that the things that they planned and prioritized would be executed as, as intended. The elements of the service, the communion tables set up, are, are set up in a very particular way to reflect our theological priorities. Sometimes, though, we, we, get, we get kind of lost in the details a little bit, and we lose sight of the, the things that these signs in our worship service are pointing to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is addressing an issue in the the Corinthian church regarding the, the problems that happen when you lose sight of the why. Now, the Corinthian church is a really, really interesting church. And there are some really exciting things going on in this church. There are people who are coming to Christ and they're excited about it and there are different things happening in their worship services that are there are signs of obvious growth, but there are also real problem things, and there are issues that, that are arising, and, and it's kind of a mixed bag, that as, as Paul writes to them in this letter. We have, a, we have a church that is zealous, but sometimes zealous for the wrong reasons, because it's lost sight of what it's about. It's a church that's, that's divided into factions. Early on, we read about people who, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ, and they're, they're all together, but they don't have a common sense of identity. It's a, it's, a, it's a church in which there are some skewed priorities. In the early part of the book, we, talk, we read about how some Christians are losing sight of the, of the message of the cross because they're focused on the technique. We need to be able to convey this in the right way. And the message is breaking down. There's, a, there's, there's a, an issue in the church with people's kind of self-centered priorities and there's, there are questions of immorality and, and, and conduct around marriage and, and other issues that are, that are hampering the life of the church. There's a, there's a church where, where in their zeal to pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there is conflict and chaos and, and order is kind of breaking down. They're not all on the same page. If you think about it, really, it probably could be any one of a number of churches that you probably know, even in this community. These are not problems that happened a long time ago that never happened again. These are problems that, which continued to happen. And so I think there's, there's real, a real teaching point for us here. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is getting around to talking to the church about the Lord's Supper and the problems around the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper. See, there is... A disconnect in Corinth in this church between what the Lord's Supper is supposed to mean and what's actually happening when the people gather around the communion table. The Lord's Supper isn't is, is being really celebrated as it ought to be, it's being dishonored, it's being violated, even trampled. And Paul decides, you know, it's time for an intervention. And so he he engages the Corinthians in the only way he can, in a letter directly addressing the issues. And it's really kind of interesting. Have you, have you ever had a, a, an opportunity or an occasion in your life when you had to have a, a conversation with somebody that you knew was going to be difficult? You know, and nobody wants to have these things. You don't look forward to them, at least I don't. Sometimes you, you, you start to have a conversation and you, and you make some small talk. Or sometimes you try to... You try to say something positive to try to, you know, butter somebody up, you know, or, or you know, sometimes I've, I've heard people talk about a praise sandwich, you know, open up with a, with a good thing and then you get to the hard part and then you try to end it on an up note, you know, things like that. I find it really interesting that Paul doesn't take the time to do any of that. He just goes, bam, right to the point. In verse 17, if you're looking in chapter 11, here's what he opens up with on the topic of the Lord's Supper. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. I have nothing good to say. You are messing up terribly. I mean, no, no beating around the bush, no accenting, accentuating the positive. He just, right between the eyes. And I think, if this doesn't give us an insight into the gravity of the situation, I don't know what would. I mean, in Proverbs 27, verse 6, it says, you know, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I think Paul is taking the posture of a a good friend who has found it necessary to actually speak a difficult truth at this point. And so he speaks with a necessary boldness that doesn't mean that he doesn't care, doesn't mean that he doesn't love. Actually, it means that he does. There's a huge lesson for us, even in that point alone. But he goes on. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, there's an interesting truth in this right here. And it's not one where Paul is sort of expressing a wishful thinking. That it sounds like, I hear you're divided, but that can't possibly be. Paul isn't, isn't naive. The point that he's actually trying to make here is a, is a more difficult one than that. What he's saying here is that there is a contradiction, an, a, a huge contradiction in the way that they come together. Because he's saying, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. That is a contradiction right there. And he's saying, We've got, we got, we got to deal with this one right off the hop here. We are the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ at Jericho Ridge. Paul is writing to the body of Christ in Corinth. If the body of Christ does not come together bound and united by the bond of the Holy Spirit, if there is anything that divides, that breaks down relationships, that causes uh, antipathy or hostility, any kind of estrangement. There is a a profound problem. And what Paul is saying is that not only is that a reality in your church, but you're actually allowing that to continue. That's not the body. You're not being the body of Christ. That's not the way the body of Christ works. There is something really, seriously, profoundly wrong. I mean, look. Here's what he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four about them that I think is also telling. He says, um, "Walk in a manner of the worthy of the calling to which you have been called." That's Ephesians 4.1. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you you catch the, the tone of that? The one, one, one. We're one body, and whenever that gets overshadowed by anything else, then there is a problem. And for the Corinthians, it's a problem. And as a result, they could not be the body of Christ as God intended them to be. They could not do what God intended them to do. Let's move forward here. It's interesting what he says here. In verse 19, he says, "...no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval." The, the, the differences, the conflicts, actually highlight that some people are actually working with good motives, pure motives, and some not so, or less so. Now, it's easy for us to associate, oh, I must be one of the ones with the good motives, and there are probably other people who have impure motives. Don't, don't, I hope we don't ever take comfort, and I hope I never try to take comfort in that kind of logic, because Paul is basically saying, okay, there is a... a Basically, there is a blessing to this curse that you have, the curse of disunity. But, you know, at least, at least acknowledge that there is disunity before you try to take comfort in, in trying to assume that you're one of the good people. It's a, it really is only the, the bright side of a really bad situation. And it's evidenced in their regular observance of the Lord's Supper as he goes on to say in verse 20. So then when you come together to eat, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's really interesting that they thought that they were eating the Lord's Supper, but Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not the Lord's Supper. Why? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. You see, the the, the, the early church used to have their communion service around... Basically, a, 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 almost like a potluck supper. A communal meal that was known as the love feast. Except that in Cor- Corinth, there wasn't a lot of love in the love feast. At least, not love for other people, the, the way Paul expresses needs to happen. Because people were gathering there, and they weren't waiting for any, everybody to arrive. And they were gathering in groups. Gathering all of our, my friends in my little clique, and they, we were having supper over here, and If other people came and they ate or not, I wasn't wasn't too concerned about that. And there were some people who were getting stuffed. Um, They were getting drunk while other people were coming for reasons that Paul doesn't even express. They're really not important. And not only are they being left out, but they're going hungry. They're literally going hungry Their their physical needs are not being met. Their spiritual needs are not being met. There was no unity. There was no love. And the one gathering that is supposed to be, most of all, in the entire life of the church, a sign of the unity, mutuality, and togetherness of the body of Christ was reinforcing the fact that there were huge divisions. This is a, just to, board, to, to adapt the phrase, when church becomes about getting fed, about me getting fed, things start to break down. And this is both a physical and a spiritual example. Ouch. And Paul goes on, you know, by, by concludes this part by saying, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. He's just, hitting it right on the head, because it's supposed to be about communion, the sharing. So when he goes on, here is what he says, and I think it's really important that when he he continues in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. There there are different times when, when Paul says, Okay, this is my advice. This is what I say. And there are certain times when Paul says, no, this is from the Lord. And Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians know, this is from the Lord. This isn't Paul's advice. This is God's directive to you guys. And something that we should take to heart similarly. This, this is significant. That this, the way in which we practice this communion service comes from the instructions of Jesus himself. This this is something, this isn't incidental, this isn't random, this isn't negotiable. Now it's really interesting that the idea of sharing food together isn't a new thing. There are actually a, a number of things in the New Testament that the church did that are actually not new things. Communal meals, not new things. People did that before. Baptisms were not new things. People did that before. The Jews baptized proselytes, converts, into the Jewish faith in the Old Testament times and in in the time up to Jesus' day. But in New Testament perspective, in light of Christ, all of these things took on new meaning. And this is what the communion service was intended to do. It brought sharing to a new level by rooting it in the, the mutuality of the meal and the sacrifice of Christ. And I think there are four things that we need to think about as we, as we partake in communion, four levels of significance. The first one, of course, is remembrance. We're all familiar with this one because Jesus says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the new covenant in my blood, um, in remembrance of my sacrifice. Jesus says, remember what I have done for you because that changes everything. But there are three more. Flip back the page, or flip down your finger to to chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, because he he talks a little bit ahead and foreshadows what he's going to say in the next chapter. Talking about the communion table again, or at least implying. He says, therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In verse 16, listen to this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Every time we partake of communion, we participate in the life of Christ, and we remind ourselves that our individual and collective life as a community, is a participation in the life and ministry of Christ. In this community, in in Langley, we are the representation of Christ, and everything that happens to us is a participation in the life of Christ. Everything is part of God's sovereign purpose in our lives. Our joys represent Christ to the world. Our sufferings represent Christ to the world. And we're reminded of it every time we take that bread and drink that cup. Number three, there's a reaffirmation. Sometimes couples renew their wedding vows. They are so in love, they are so committed that they want to renew and let everybody know that they are just as committed and just as serious now as they were 10 or 15 or 25 or however many years ago. I think correspondingly, every time we partake of the communion elements together, it's a reaffirmation of our surrender to the covenant in Jesus' blood, surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives and everything that means for us in community. We renew our pledges every time we partake as Jesus' disciples. And fourth, there's a proclamation a proclamation. Excuse me. Verse 26 says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here we proclaim it within the community to our sisters and brothers who are are fellowshipping and worshipping with us together. But the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't end here, I hope. This is a A reaffirmation and a proclamation that needs to spill over into everything that we do, into whatever we're doing on Father's Day this afternoon. Whatever you're doing this week is a proclamation. But but it starts here. The focal point is here. This This is the first sign of communion. The significance of the death, the sacrifice of Christ. The body and blood that are given for us. It's interesting, there's a hinge point in here, in verse 27. Whenever we come to take communion together, we are reminded to do it seriously, solemnly, with some self-examination. And that is a worthy exhortation, a worthy call. We should emphasize the need for self-examination when we come to the table. What's really interesting here is that there's more to it than, than we often realize. In verse 27, Paul says this So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Don't ever, ho- I hope, get the idea that if I examine myself, I become worthy, I become good enough to take communion. I don't know about you, but I know I can speak for me. I'm never good enough to take communion. I'm never good enough to participate in the life of Christ. I'm sinful, I'm wretched, and I'm awful. And I yell at my kids and I speed and I do other things that far more horrible than I'm going to enumerate. In, in this gathering this morning it's not a matter of me becoming worthy enough to participate that's actually not what Paul is talking about here. When Paul talks about drinking the cup in an unworthy manner he's talking about in a manner which is not fitting the occasion, which does not acknowledge the significance of the of the commemoration together. remember what the Corinthians were doing they were just Eating and drinking, they were stuffing themselves, they were selfish, they weren't weren't thinking about the significance of the fellowship that they were having, they weren't sharing the, the, the importance of Christ's sacrifice, they were just eating. And so therefore, they were doing it in an unworthy manner. Now, we don't have a love feast around communion, but we can equally take communion in an unworthy manner if we do so because it's something that we've got to do. It's that Sunday of the month. And if we think of it as, oh my goodness, the service is going to be have this other add-on at the end, but we'll just do that so that we can get on with the rest of our day. Or if we do that in a way that fails to address in some measure the significance of what this means for us individually and especially as a community, we're in danger of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. This is never, no matter how we do this, just another piece of bread and another cup of juice. This is everything that gives life and hope and purpose in the world in one commemoration. And we have the incredible privilege of sharing it. Which brings me to the second sign. There The importance of communion is to follow the signs. There's more than one. In verse 28, Paul goes on to say, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And in verse 29, he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. You see, the significance of this is that discerning the body and blood and recognizing what Christ has done is only one thing. But what Paul is talking about here in verse 29 is that we are supposed to discern the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is not just on the table. The body of Christ is around the table. This is the body of Christ. This is what we are called to discern. This is why Christ died to create a community that is transformed and empowered to do the work of God in the world. These are your sisters and your brothers. It's interesting that Jesus, remember when, when, when he was preaching and doing his ministry, people said to, to Jesus, so oh, your, your, your mother and your, your family is here, and he says, my family is here, and he ignored his biological family, and he pointed to his spiritual family. I believe that that's instructive for us. I am going to boldly suggest that the closest, most important, most transformative, most... um, I forgot the word, but it was a really good word. (laughs) Intentional. There we go. Relationships should be the relationships you have around this room with the sisters and brothers who are united with you through the Holy Spirit. This is the body of Christ. And if we lose sight of this when we take communion, then we have lost sight of everything. Everything. And if you're not sure if you believe me, look at what Paul's next words are in verse 29 and 30 and 31. Because he says, "...for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves." That is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. The judgment of God was so powerful in this case that people were bringing themselves under judgment even unto death because they weren't discerning the body of Christ and the unity that they had in their church. Now... I'm not expecting anybody to be struck dead at communion today, but I think that we fool ourselves if we think that we can gloss over this and expect no consequence. But lest we think that God is punitive and angry with us, go on and read some more. If we, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. And verse 32, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Even in God's discipline, there is the promise of restoration and wholeness. It is a, it's an amazing thought. So, the next steps. What are the next steps? What does Paul say that we should actually do differently? He spends a lot of time hammering the Corinthians about what they're doing wrong. Does he leave it there? Mercifully, no. In the last couple of verses, 33 and 34, very practical, tangible steps. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Why? Because it's not just about food. It's about what we do together. It's about how we are together. It's about who we are together in Christ. It's a meal with a purpose. And it's a sign of what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. It's an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing privilege. And I... I urge you to not think carefully when you take that bread in your hand, but also look around. Look around. And here's what I, here's what I suggest you, to, you do this morning. It's been said, and I can't remember who said it, I think it might have been Henry Nouwen, that fellowship is, real fellowship is being with the person that you like the least and, and relishing the experience. I'm paraphrasing. So here's what I want you to do. As you take the elements, I want you to think about the someone from this community or, or someone who gives you the most difficulty, the, the one you have the most difficulty loving. And I want you to think about that sister or that brother. And I want you to pray for unity with that brother. Pray for harmony. Pray for fellowship with that brother or sister this morning when you take the element. This is why Jesus did the work he did to break down those barriers, to create communion, not just observe, so that we can observe communion. I'm going to call the worship team forward. We're going to sing, and we're going to have communion together, and we're going to pass it down the rows so that you can hang on to it and so you can take it and so that you can look at each other in the eyes when you do because I think that's hugely important this morning.